Hello and welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, helping aspiring investors get to grips with the world of finance and investing. On today's programme, we look at global markets and economies with investment expert and independent commentator Adrian Lowcock. He also gives us some ideas for funds he really likes. Hello, I'm Simon Longfellow. And I'm Marcus De Silva. And welcome along to the podcast. Well, as I said, on today's show, we're speaking to Adrian Lowcock, and we're looking at the state of global investment markets. But first, let's catch up on the week in numbers. Um, Marcus, Richard Curtis and greenwashing. Yes, that's right. Well, sort of two separate stories here. Um, ah, yes, no, I didn't mean Richard Curtis was doing greenwashing. Doing green greenwashing, yeah, no, <laughs> he's not, not been involved with that. Very much the opposite. So this is, I mean, I'm sure you all know who he is. This is the famous British director of all things soppy and romantic. Think Love Actually, Notting Hill. More recently, yesterday. Have you seen yesterday, Simon? No, but he does. He was involved with Blackadder as well. So he does, he's not totally, um, you know, rom-com. That's very true. You're absolutely right. Yes, back in his sort of BBC days. But anyway, yeah, it's, um, it's you know, absolutely fantastic film. I'm a big fan of Richard Curtis. Um, and he was on the new Interactive Investor Family Money Show. So they've got this new show out. So I think they're putting it out on, on YouTube, but we got a bit of a preview um, into it. And it's been hosted by Gabby Logan, if you know who she is. And what Richard Curtis was doing was waxing lyrical about his new obsession with ethical and sustainable investing. Right. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So he's long been an activist, really, and involved in charity. As a reminder, he was one of the co-founders of Comic Relief back in 1985. He's also been a big part of Make Poverty History and Live 8 in 2005. So, you know, he's a real activist. And in June last year, he founded this lobby group called Make My Money Matter. We have mentioned it before, but I thought I'd go back to it. And he, what he's trying to do is shift some of this three trillion pounds of UK pension money into what he describes as building a better world. In other words, getting pension money shifted into more sustainable investments. He believes, as he points out in the show, and I quote, the single biggest weapon in the battle against injustice is your pension. And he also thinks that Brits are really passionate about this kind of stuff, you know, social and climate issues are important to us. And he said that if money, you know, if pension money was reapplied into better, more sustainable, more moral businesses, it could create a huge shift in how capitalism operates, something we've actually written on in our first magazine as well. So I thought that was all quite interesting. I, I think he, you know, he's obviously got um, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of attention that he can draw to himself in these kind mm. of issues. And I think he is making a big impact as well. Um, so to stay on that kind of ESG um, kind of idea, sustainable investing, the other thing I was reading about was this these efforts to tackle greenwashing. So the Treasury this week have announced a crackdown on greenwashing. And it's an issue we've spoken about before. Basically, companies or even ESG kind of sustainable funds presenting themselves as more sustainable than they actually are. And what what we want to do is try and weed out those companies that are really just using this as a marketing tool. They realize that the 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 I mean the tides have completely turned on companies who do dirty, polluting, horrible things. And that money will just flow rapidly away from them. So 
there's some that are kind of trying to present themselves as greener than they actually are. You know, they might be polluting in one side of the world and then planting trees in the other in order to try and improve their ESG scores. It's, that's not really a green business, right? Versus those who, you know, you can describe it green as being in their DNA, you know, so that it's actually something that's part and parcel of what they're trying to do as a business operation. And of course, greenwashing undermines confidence in sustainable investing. And we know that sustainable investing is going to become mainstream in this decade right so we need to have confidence in that as a force for good Maura O'Neill our friend at Interactive Investor uh, um, and head of personal finance as well said it's very difficult for the ordinary retail investor as well to distinguish between truly madly deeply green and simply washed hmm. which I thought was a, a beautiful way of describing it so what the Treasury have done they've announced this ta task force to to crack down on this by establishing standardized data and again we've talked about this before you know that's yeah, the issue isn't it? it it's it's trying to benchmark against something that isn't really very clear precisely right and and what they described it as they want to set the bar for green investments and they're exactly right everyone should be able to tell whether something is green it shouldn't just be you know like we spoke to the big exchanges jill jackson and the way in which they vet their funds is through this independent research house their top quality square mile well, retail investors don't have access to that, no. you know, so so it, need, it needs to be sorted out. So I think it's a really, really um, uh, an important thing. As I say, this is an enormous burgeoning sector. Um, so two really positive things there on, on making a difference with your money. What about you? What have you been looking at? Well, I've got some new data from Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, HMRC, to her friends. Uh, it shows that in the last tax year, 2019 2020, it was the best ever year for the individual savings account, uh, also known as an ISA. So let me just give you the numbers um, that were published this week. AJ Bell, the uh, investment platform, uh, led on this and published a, a bunch of numbers. So around 13 million adult ISA accounts were subscribed to. That means that money went into them in that tax year, which is up about 16% actually from the previous tax year. Only about 11 million went in uh, in the previous year. The total value of the adult ISA market hit £620 billion in 2019-20. That's a new record. And the number of people subscribing to lifetime ISAs, so these are the ones that can help with property um, purchases, has more than doubled year on year. So that's gone from 223,000 to 545,000. And the total amount, last one, the total amount paid into ISAs increased by 7.1 billion pounds to 75 billion with 4.8 billion extra going into cash ISAs mm. versus 1.6 billion going into stocks and shares mm. and you know that is uh, the interesting point here you know 1.2 million people went and put money in cash ISAs um, the number of increase in subscribers to stocks and shares ISAs was a quarter of that. It was only 300,000. Mm. Um, now, interestingly, and uh, to uh, just uh, give, give myself a plug, I've written about that in this week's uh, <laughs> blog. So if you want to find out why that is and why mm. is all the money going into, into cash ISAs, check out the blog post at stepstoinvesting.com and the blog is just on the, the top navigation there. Yeah, I mean, this is just... I, I don't know why people remain so invested in cash. I mean, at the end of the day, we have ultra low interest rates and we have inflation that's rising. You know, two worst things for savers. Yeah. And the only way in which you are going to ever achieve that, that forward momentum and, and grow your wealth is if you take 
a little bit of risk. And actually, this leads to another plug for a future a future pod. But we're we're interviewing a real life soon to be retiree and and that's exactly the point that he makes and he also says you know life is full of risks you know you go on a holiday and you get on a plane you got to take some risk doing that don't you to go and have your holiday especially if it's going to portugal (laughs) exactly you've got to take you know take a risk crossing the road you've got to take risks in life to get things and it's the same with your money and i thought that was a a really good point but that's that's one to come up yeah look forward to that okay in a moment we're talking to investment expert and independent commentator adrian lowcock but first let's find out what's been happening in the news Uh, let's do markets first as ever marcus over to you. Sure. So uh, global shares are on a record high this week. Investors for the moment seem to be convinced that inflation is transitory. Therefore, central banks with their fire hoses of money that they're just chucking um, at markets in the economy is is going to continue. That's, that's the kind of belief, which I think is why... Um, you know, markets are so high. And this is because, you know, the Fed have been pretty unified on their message that inflation is transitory. You know, the the near term figures, basically, and Adrian's going to go into this in a bit more detail, year on year, is comparing prices today with the chaos of COVID in 2020, when we were in the first lockdowns, right? So you can see why this argument for transitory inflation is there. Of course, what the worry warts in the market are going to be waiting for is is just further proof that it's much higher than than we're comfortable with and then of course that it that it will be more than transitory so later today we've got cpi data from the us for may now cpi is consumer price index it's a it's a it's a form of, of measuring inflation just price rises basically so they're going to be looking for whether that is higher than expected um because a few weeks ago we had another measure of inflation it's called pc personal consumption expenditure and that was higher than it expected. So that's what the worry warts are kind of focusing on, you know, inflation. On the other side of, of things, of course, the, the two big things that are important to central banks are inflation. They want to keep that under control and employment jobs. And so balancing that, OK, inflation is a bit higher than expected, is the fact that jobs have been weaker than expected. So I think that's why you know, that plus this belief, you know, this unified message from the Fed, I think that's why investors are, are still quite positive and, and markets are on a high. The ECB, so the more central banks here, the ECB is also going to be discussing where rates go for, for Europe. So we're going to be waiting on, on that this week as well. I mean, Europe is lagging at other developed markets really in terms of its recovery because of vaccinations being a bit behind the curve as well. So I don't think we're going to see any changes there. In Asia markets as well, we saw, saw some, uh, you know, some rises after a few, a few week sessions in markets. And that's because we've heard that high level talks are progressing a little bit between the US and China um, as they try to resolve some of these issues over, over trade. And it follows some angst. You know, China were a bit like angsty about this new legislation that went through in the US. So Congress passed this, this new legislation. And basically, it, it, it's all this money designed to boost technologies so that it can compete against uh, China now and in, and in the future. I mean, $190 billion was signed off, including $54 billion for, for research and development in semiconductors and telecoms equipment. Specifically, there was $2 billion for chips for electric vehicles. Because actually, we, we've had manufacturers around the world 
have to sh- not shut down, but slow mm. their manufacturing enormously because they can't get hold of enough chips. No, that's right. So there's too much of a bottleneck there. So they, they need to relieve those sorts of pressures because, of course, they, they, they could be, well, I mean, who knows how they could geopolitically end up um, creating problems. All in all, the S&P 500 is up 28 points to 4,220. The FTSE 100 is up 38 points to 7,099. The Stock 600 is up 3 points to 454. And then the K225 is up 64 points to 28,000. 959. Simon, what have you got in markets? Uh, companies. Companies, yeah. yeah. Probably well, not. I mean, yeah. I could do I some markets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it'll be much good. Um, uh, well, I'm going to start with JBS. Heard of those guys? I um, No, actually. They are the world's largest meat processing company. Oh, yes, I have heard of them, yes. Well, they have paid almost £8 million in ransom to online hackers who installed ransomware on oh. the company's computers. It's getting uh, quite uh, mm. popular, if that's the right word. Is mm. I've, I've heard about a mm. couple of uh, cases recently in sort of local firms. But the computer networks at JBS were basically hacked, um, brought to a, uh, a standstill last week, and it closed some of their operations in Australia, in Canada, and in the U.S., um, apparently, the payment was made to them in Bitcoin. So, um, you know, make of that what you will. Um, but the plants had come back online uh, first, you know, so the, the payment was made on, on understanding that the plants would come back online. And basically, JBS just says it was necessary to pay the ransom to protect their customers. Um, so what they, they sort of hack in, lock data away, and say they delete it unless you pay. That's it. That's yeah, it. They, yeah, yeah, they... they um, well, just stop people getting access to machines so they, they mm. can't sign on and do work. Mm. But also then they steal personal data and threaten to release it, basically. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's a pretty grim uh, affair. But, um, you know, what do you do? You, you pay or you, you know, you pay um, a, a firm to come and sort all your computers out, which takes weeks and months. Of course. Um, yeah, so the disruption could be what could sink a company, right? Yeah. It's like the modern digital highwayman, basically. Well, it is because of everything, I, I guess, including meat processing, is controlled by computer. Mm. Um, anyway, speaking of digital firms, Google has been fined £189 million by the French um, because it's been promoting its own online services, its advertising services, to the detriment of rivals. Mm. So it's found that, that Google's ad management platform, called Google Ad Manager, has favoured the company's own online ad marketplace, which is a thing called Google Google Ad X. Google said it would make changes to its advertising business as a consequence, but let's face it, it's not the first time that the company, which is owned by uh, the firm Alphabet, has been slapped with fines for falling foul of European advertising rules. In fact, Google was fined £1.3 billion only in 2019 for blocking rival online search advertisers. And finally, and this this blew my socks off to this story, finally, who knew that stamp collecting could be so expensive? But this week, the firm Stanley Gibbons has spent, wait for it, $8.3 million on the world's most expensive stamp. (laughs) $8.3 million. And it's a stamp called the One Cent Magenta uh, from British Guyana. It was printed in 1856, and it's the only one of its kind still in existence. Uh, Stanley Gibbons, for its part, 
the 165-year-old company um, intends to offer, and I thought this was interesting, it tends to offer customers the chance to buy a fractional ownership of the stamp, mm. basically as it sort of tries to put its, digit, its, its kind of um, offline model online. So you can uh, actually go and see the stamp in the London store of Stanley Gibbons, um, but then you can essentially own a fraction of it through, um, through their online platform. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay, well, that is the news. So let's turn now to our interview. And this week, we look at global markets. So I thought it was about time to have a deeper look at what's going on in global markets and economics and see where we currently stand and also find out where there's investment opportunities at the moment. We always want to know about those. So we have back our regular commentator and markets expert, Adrian Lowcock. Adrian, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. So let's begin with COVID. I mean, are we out of the woods yet? Uh, I mean, it's obviously a very good question and and the topic in everyone's minds at the moment. Um, I think we have to be very careful as investment experts to pretend we know the answers to to COVID. Um, So if we just look at where we are at the moment, you know, the UK looks like it's on a recovery phase the us is is reopening and and europe is a little way a little bit way behind that but there's still going to be other countries and regions that that could that could have um spikes in the virus um and it is a global uh, pandemic so i i think probably we're out of that initial sort of crisis of of repeat lockdowns and 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 things getting worse before they get better um, but I still think we're in a period where there's going to be a huge amount of disruption globally, and that disruption could 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 last a, a couple of years. However, behind all of that is the fact that uh, companies, you know, they they they've adjusted and they will continue to adjust. Um, so I think you know COVID's going to hang around. It's going to be there for a while. There's always the risk that something could happen. Whether you know. Uh, uh, a, a another um, variant uh, crops up that the, the vaccines don't work against. So that's a risk that uh, I think exists now, um, and therefore there's a risk that you know further lockdowns could happen. Albeit they they seem to be the sort of unlikely or worst case scenario, and I think markets are starting to reflect that. Would you say there's any markets that probably should be avoided at the moment for COVID reasons? Uh, that's a good question. I think you probably still need to be cautious of perhaps um, uh, Latin America um, and, uh, and Southern Hemisphere countries that are effectively entering their winter, um, where where there could be a resurgence of the virus through winter, um, and uh, whether or not we see something reappear in Asia on that. But uh, you know, we've seen India sort of go through 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 a, a really horrific time with a, a peak in the virus recently. Um, I think you've just got to be fleet of foot though um, and, and ready ready to react. I think it's sort of dangerous to sort of label the whole of South, you know, the whole of um, Africa and, you know, consider Asia all in one, one group and just be aware that things could change very quickly. Some commentators think, you know, we've had very, very good support that sort of from a fiscal and monetary support that sort of carried us through the crisis quite effectively. And now there's a lot of commentators think, you know, we could be set up for quite a roaring decade, another roaring 20s. Do you agree with this? Uh, Yeah, uh, you've got uh, two things that really sort of potentially could trigger this. One, this wasn't a recession in the any means of traditional sense. This was a 
conscious decision by governments and global economies to shut down. And that means the recovery will, is likely to be materially different. Um, you know, people have saved a lot of money, they're going to go out and spend, there's a, a relief spend or revenge spend, as I think some people are calling it. Um, and people go out to restaurants, pubs, they, you know, they, they get on and live life a little bit more. And that gives you a roaring, a, a stronger rebound. Um, but the roaring 20s is sort of analogy is a little bit more to do with the fiscal stimulus that could that could also support it longer term. And, um, you know, Biden's stimulus packages, I, I think the numbers, you know, they, they range in whether it's two trillion or six trillion, which is the sort of most recent number, but it's all trillions of dollars. It, it, it is huge. And that stimulus could really help power economic growth um, at, at levels we haven't seen for many years. Uh, so, you know, vaccine, pandemic relief, um, uh, spending save, savings that people perhaps otherwise wouldn't have had, and, and stimulus all point to the potential for, for a strong economic period coming out of this crisis. But there is, I think you, you do need to be cautious as well. Um, you know, some, some people aren't necessarily rushing back to the shops. Um, some people are still very concerned and, and scared. And, and the damage done by the pandemic is still to be seen. Um, and probably just like the Roaring Twenties, it probably wasn't all in one direction all the time. Um, you know, it, when you live these things, you don't necessarily think they're as good as as good as history might paint them to be. So, that you know, even in that, there will be places to lose money. There will be places to make money. Um, so investors need to perhaps not get excited by that term and just, uh, I think, be be cautiously optimistic. Okay, I'm going to bring us back down to a sort of shorter term view. And I think um, one of the fears that we're seeing in markets potential or one of the one of the things that investors are wondering is what's going to happen when we remove this enormous quantity of stimulus that we've received from uh, central banks the quantitative easing that they've pumped into economies um because the fit you know whilst it's been very useful during uh, a crisis it's kind of like this medicine that, that when you start to come off it it can have side effects and we saw in 2013 that markets didn't like it. There was what they, what's referred to as the taper tantrum um, uh, when when it, it started to become clear that that uh, banks were going to remove this sort of support. So my question to you is, you know, where, where, what do you think about the the effect of QE tapering, and when do you reckon it will it will happen? So I, this this the quantitative um, stimulus that was used this time round. Um, uh, was done so for very, very different reasons than during the financial crisis. Um, and I think the fear that existed during the financial crisis, you know, it was about the collapse of the financial system. And that was palpable for many, many years. There was really concerns, you know, even into 2012, that the financial system was still not secure, you know, particularly in Europe. This time around, it's been done to address a specific issue in a specific crisis and you can you can see the unwinding of that crisis you know as as lockdowns ease you don't need to protect the jobs to the same extent and you can wind that down which means that you can sort of effectively ease off any uh quantitative easing um uh, easing and, and just um effectively stop that without too much impact you can sort of marry the two off um the the tapering 
and and effectively the returning of that, uh, sort of removing of that stimulus itself. I think it's going to happen in, in two ways. I think one is going to be, you know, returnings of any emergency loans to governments that were made. And, and you know, you've already seen some companies do that in the UK um, as they return the sort of the emergency relief and the emergency funding that they got. Um, and then the, the real one about effectively um, uh, taking, you know, uh, repaying some of that that uh, that that quantitative easing, and I think that will probably come through in different ways. You know, it was only really the US that sort of tried to reverse quantitative easing; the rest of the world sort of did didn't actually get to that point. Um, so I think, generally speaking, tapering of quantitative easing won't be seen as a bad thing. It won't have the same impact as 2013. There will be lessons learned from how you do it from 2013, but. The, the, you know, the, the financial system went through this crisis in a fairly robust manner. It wasn't really under any, any significant threat. And therefore, the effect of tapering isn't going to be as significant. And I don't think it will be actually a huge concern to markets as long as it's done with a, you know, uh, without sort of a surprise announcements and, and, and any, any, any tapering is just sort of well flagged and, 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 you know, sort of highlighted to the market ahead of the event. So I'm not concerned about taper itself. I think that's not going to be an issue. Yeah, and we've definitely heard sort of murmurings from the Fed's board where, you know, it's a very, oh, we might start to think about that maybe in future meetings. So you can sort of begin to see that very slowly, slowly approach so that there's no market shocks, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, what, what the Fed and central banks generally have learned to do from the uh, financial crisis was, um, you know, say, say the right things, um, make the right noises um, and prepare people for a change as opposed to necessarily announcing a change. And I think that that in itself will, will help um, uh, settle markets. I think what markets are really going to be looking at over the next next sort of few months and years is, is really where, what the growth looks like and, and what the, the impact of the pandemic is on, on, on the economy. Um, you know, as really as 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 emergency reliefs are, are are withdrawn and and support for jobs is 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 sort of reversed. You know, is, is there suddenly a big spike in unemployment? Is there a you know? Do we see bankruptcies in companies that you know were effectively supported um, through the crisis, but you know, the business models were already in decline prior to the crisis? Yeah, I mean, because this was self-inflicted, do you feel like that growth potential, you know, it's, that we're more likely to see stronger growth off the back of it? Uh, I think you see a stronger recovery. Um, I think the um, uh, there's, you know, there has uh, been also some acceleration of trends in, in the, uh, you know, the, the digitization, uh, the retail uh, market and the high street is, you know, there, there are going to be changes there that are permanent. Um, uh, but what's sort of the support and, and fiscal stimulus and, and sort of the monetary stimulus, the quantitative easing does, is it supports uh, companies that, you know, perhaps wouldn't have survived on their own. Um, so, the, you know, we saw that in the financial crisis where zombie, zombie companies survive and productivity drops. The question is whether or not that is repeated this time around or, you know, there, there's a, a bit more creative um, destruction in industry and businesses and, and across all sectors and companies, you know, survive on their own merit and we get a new new generation of businesses that that, that step in and, and, and replace perhaps zombie companies either, you know, directly or indirectly um, and, and just, you know, they, they become the new leaders. I want to... That, that in itself rotates, sorry, that in itself 
helps generate growth. I want to just move on to um, inflation because this is something that has been you know it's talked about a lot in the press at the moment um, and we know a little bit of inflation is good too much is, is not very good so can you just sort of describe that when does it become a problem inflation? So that's a really good one um, and inflation is really topical at the moment so it's all to do with what your ex- partly to do with what your expectation is. So, you know, if your expectation of inflation is 1% and it's 3%, then that's usually not considered a good thing because the inflation surprise markets. However, generally speaking, um, you know, it, higher inflation is not good for bonds. Um, so at, the, at this level, even a 3% inflation is probably not great for bond, 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 bond funds and the bond, bond assets. Um, but for equities, I think a four to six percent is generally seen as an area that they can tolerate and accept and can do okay in. Uh, above that, and then and then it starts to get uh, you know quite 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 out of control, and can, and and the, and the fear is it can get out of control very very quickly. Um, I think four to six percent in the current environment sounds very high, um, and you know I don't think anyone's sort of predicting we'll get to those levels in the short term um uh, you know and a consistently long period of inflation um but you know we've, we've had a we've had a period of very very low inflation so even three percent inflation will feel quite high well let's focus a little bit on um some of the major economies i mean in the us we've got i mean you mentioned the enormous spending that's going on there with biden's plans and this big monetary support and the latest inflation the pc figure i think was 2.9 percent do you do you buy that 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 fed's argument that it's transitory there or, or are you a bit more worried about inflation there um i do i think there's you the, the inflation you need to look at in, in two aspects you do need to look at it on the sort of 12 month figures and what's what's dropping out of the inflationary figures and what's coming in and what's dropping out of the inflation figures at the moment is very low oil prices um and you know and oil's not high but it's it's much higher than it was back in april may last year so as they come out you get a little spike in inflation um you also had massive disruption and and the figures that you saw sort of in april may last year they uh they they weren't particularly accurate because people were in lockdown and therefore the the, the actual figures being reported probably weren't very uh reliable um so i think you do have a blip um, I think, you know, you need to look beyond that blip and actually ask what's going to happen with inflation over, you know, by the end of this year and kind of going into 2022 and 2023. And that that becomes a lot less clear. Um, you know, we don't, we, there will be price rises that, you know, well, supply chains have been hugely disrupted. Um, companies have, you know, have missed their, their you know, missed, missed um, seasons where they make most of their money and, and, and you know, therefore they may have to change their margins and, and pass on some of that, that pain that they suffered onto the consumer. And I think that's where it's very hard to forecast. It's, you know, it, and, and I, I personally think inflation is a risk. I think, you know, a low inflation environment was, was a, a, a characteristic of the last uh, crisis um and rarely do they you know rarely do two crises look the same um so i think inflation is a risk longer term but we are going through a transit a transitory period at the moment what about the uk i think it's a similar picture i mean oil is global um i think there's the addition in the uk that you have things like brexit going on um and you know i, I think you just have to look at what you know if you go to the shops now go out and uh, you know, have a beer in a pub or whatever it may be, and you can see that there has definitely been price rises. Um, uh, but 
I think, again, you know, how much is that temporary? I think some of this will, you know, it will take it take time to work out in the supply chains and things will settle down and, and companies will, you know, start competing on price again. Um, they're probably not doing that at the moment. Um, but I think what we'll see is a similar, similar situation. Inflation will spike a little bit in the UK. Um, the property market has been a bit harder, so that's probably an area where, you know, there will be a bit more uh, price inflation on that side of things. Um, and I think Brexit and you know uh, the the sort of relationship with the EU and the uh, um, uh, taxes and, and costs of importing that that will have an inflationary impact. So I think it will be a bit a bit higher for a bit longer in the UK. And then it's really the same challenges into 2022. Uh, there's inflationary pressures there, but you know how how they work through the supply chains and 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 where they where they impact the UK economy. I think it's probably a little bit too early to say how that will work out because i suppose with supply chain you know is it a an economy is coming out of a deep sleep effectively and sort of being a bit uh, groggy or is it um you know a broader sign of some deglobalization and perhaps you know onshoring that's going to lead to more permanent price rises i suppose um so, so that and, and that's yeah i think that's that's right and some of it is coming out of the 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 sleep and the the particular you know the uniqueness of a of a pandemic where you know lockdowns happen and uh, you know and there will be additional costs to, to transporting goods around the world now because there will be you know covid checks or whatever better term um but also the you know the other the other fear that the, the pandemic caused at the start was you know the fear of supply chain disruption, um, and and definitely deglobalization is a longer term theme. Um, technology can help reduce some of that uh, the cost that, that that would do. Otherwise, probably you know globalization would continue, um, and so technology can help sort of bring that back back uh, those costs back down. So I don't think it's a a, a purely inflationary factor. I think it's probably a. Um, uh, you know, culture, a cultural shift, and 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 you know, an ethical one as well, an environmental and ethical one, the sustainability of it all. You know, shipping uh, fruit from uh, South America is probably not, you know, it's no longer, it's not environmentally friendly. Um, and can you do something more locally that at a similar cost? Um, and that's it. Inflation isn't always just about the the the, the um, you know the price of things. It's also about what people are willing to pay for things. Um, and if they're, you know, if they were willing to sacrifice a little bit more for something that's more environmentally friendly or ethical, then, you know, I think there's a bit of that go that that will creep in as well. Okay, Adrian, let's go on to where you see some opportunities, really, and you can go anywhere across the asset spectrum when you answer this. Yeah, so I think um, the first one I would say is probably the UK. It's you know it has been unloved prior to the uh, the uh, pandemic. It was the most unloved market um, anywhere, and that's because of Brexit. Um, global investors just said, "Look, we don't have to invest in the UK, uh, so we'll wait and see what happens, um, and then we'll 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 pick a um, you know we'll, we'll 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 look at it after afterwards." And and you know Brexit has now happened. Um, or, you know there will be bumps along the road, but you know the UK economy hasn't collapsed. And indeed, the pandemic itself has you know, taught you that taught us that companies can survive and, and many things and are very robust and they will adapt. So I think the UK looks attractive. It also looks attractive um, from a value perspective. 
Um, but I'd, I'd probably pick something, you know, let, 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 let's uh, sort of perhaps take on something more domestic. So I think something like the Franklin UK Midcap Fund, uh, you know, that, that, that's run by um, uh, Richard Bullis. Uh, um, and, you know, he, he's looking across sort of uh, social economic overview to give him opportunities. Um, and then he's, you know, dealing deep, deep analysis of individual companies um uh, managing managing risk and, and with exposure to the mid cap it's very much in the sort of uk recovery and growth stocks um so you know there's lots 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 to sort of benefit from in that he particularly sort of house builders are perhaps a particular theme of his okay what's your second one yeah i think the second one and i, I sort of touched upon it just when i said the uk but i think also it is that value um investing approach um, Do you want to just describe what we mean by by the value investing approach? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, value, in its simplest way, it's companies that are trading at significant dis discounts to their true worth, their true value. Um, now, what that what that doesn't, I mean, that can be. You could argue that could be any company because <laughs> you don't buy a company if you think it's trading at, the, at its true value. But what it really, really sort of talks to is companies that perhaps are uh, discounted because they're, out, they're unloved by the market. So in the current and so companies can change and sectors can change quite a lot. But in the in, in value at the moment, that could be things like um, uh, financials, um, the um, uh, uh, oil sector, for example, um house builders is probably sort of stuck in that that space until uh, well uh, until recently um and then you know it could be other ones it could be airlines it could be holiday hotel companies um albeit the, these then start sort of say you know the question is value traps about some of those um and that's what you've got to avoid a value trap is something that looks cheap but but actually it wasn't um so it's where the earnings and growth are um are perhaps underappreciated by the market um, just because those sectors are not necessarily the sectors in focus, you know. So anything that wasn't technology is is sort of overlooked a little bit. Yeah, yeah, of course. And it and it tends. Am I right in saying it tends to be in sort of more asset kind of heavy, maybe old, older, worldy kind of companies, less less of the kind of modern stuff. Is that is that a good way of describing it? Yeah, at the moment it it is um, because you know anything that has a technology slant has probably got a bit of a premium to it, um, and technology focused businesses tend to have that growth um, uh, sheen on them at the moment. So it is it is probably older economy uh, stocks, um, sort of you know established uh, market you know pro historically market leaders in their in their space. Um, and yeah, it's just anything that's uh, quite often a lot of cyclical stuff can enter in the value value space. So things that tend to be more sensitive to the economic outlook. So hence you get oil companies in there, the miners quite often in there, and, and the house builders. They're all uh, have a cyclical um, style to them or a cyclical tilt, and depend on economic recovery. Yes, and this is why we saw that that big movement into them. Am I right? In in November, the vaccine trade. Because suddenly investors yeah. could start to see recovery, you know, coming much sooner than they expected. So they wanted to be. In yeah, area. absolutely. And and uh, and we uh, and that, that was it. It's you know it shifted from the stay at home trade to the uh, recovery trade. Um, and you know, if you we touched upon oil being cheap, uh, this, you know, this time last year, it's recovered quite strongly um, since. 
um, and the oil the oil majors are, are you know our share prices are still down below levels that they were prior to the pandemic. Um, but you know they, they will they they should recover and also the sort of roaring twenties. You know if you've got stimulus and and you know Biden's investment package and even if it has a a more sustainable tilt to it, you're still going to need mining companies to produce mine stuff to build whatever you know uh, sustainable projects that that are launched. So they're they're they're, they're sort of a big big part of that uh, that recovery as well. Um, so you know that value is is a it's a style, but it also does tend to sort of tilt to certain sectors at the moment. So they do tend to be more cyclical, more economic, and more industrial. Um, so a fund there in that space again, you, you you'd actually look to the UK, which has has become a, a very much a value biased uh, index. Um, and there's a manager Henry Dixon and, and his colleague uh, Jack Barrett who run the MNG uh, sorry run the Man GLG Undervalued Assets Fund, um, and you know they're looking for long term capital growth. Uh, as you said, they they you know they're looking at uh, the the assets of a business. So what are the they want to understand what the um, the value of the assets are of that business, and you know analyze its balance sheet to understand the liabilities, and then they can get a value for the company. You know, is its assets minus its liabilities worth more than the current share price? Um, and and that's what they're looking for. Those that are trading below the the value in in the business, but also have a profit uh, flow and a cash uh, a revenue flow that uh, suggests it's also undervalued and relative to the cost of Active uh, business activity cost of capital, um, and then you know they effectively invest in that. What they do, and this is quite important, I think, when investing in value, because you you know value is about share prices as well, um, and avoiding value traps. And to do that, you need to be very fleet of foot and very active. Uh, you know, a value company today, if its share price goes up 30 40 percent, is no longer potentially no longer a value company. Um, and and likewise. You know, even even the best value managers have to be constantly alert of whether or not they've bought a value trap. So they need to reassess their sort of investment thesis constantly to make sure that they are on the right side of that that risk. Um, and you know, no more so than last year in the, when the pandemic hit. You know, uh, Dixon and Barra had to just go through the whole portfolio and reassess it all um, and see if they were still valid investments and there was a lot you know a lot of activity there a lot of a lot of you know analysis and and and, and you know a deep dive into the businesses to see what whether they were going to survive and, and some 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 active changing there so this is a very actively managed fund and then number three number three uh i think i would go smaller companies um i uh, i i think that that's an area that has um sort of perhaps been overlooked in 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 the fact that we over the last sort of five years or so it's it's been, it's been all about the large tech companies and the large tech giants um and you know money has flowed into those and they've gone from you know one trillion to nearly two trillion and 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 uh they, as as lockdown happened they they sort of accelerated um but in that space you know that it's fine for them but i think in that in that time what what actually was overlooked was smaller companies um they have done quite well and i, I i'd go with a, a global smaller company i think there's a lot of uh, uh great companies out there but uh, uh and and you know there's lots of opportunity and asi global smaller companies is a really good process uh harry nimmo currently manages that fund he's just taking it back over 
Um, but it, it runs his, you know, his uh, philosophy and his focus on change matrix. Um, and just effectively what they're looking for is companies that have a growth, um, uh, fundamental growth in the business, so they've got uh, earnings growth, uh, there are attractive valuations, um, there's momentum in the business and there's a, a quality in management. Um, and I, I, I think the other thing that often gets ignored in smaller companies is that active managers can really add a lot of value in this space. Um, they, they really do just, um, you know, they, 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 they're able to sort of find a competitive edge because they can do the, the work, do the research um, and do the deep dive. And, and these, you know, a lot of these companies are actually under-researched, uh, which means that their true value is not necessarily appreciated. Um, and I think that's, you know, that, that's, that, that's really important. And it's where they add, you know, they create opportunity and add, add it uh, to, the, to the portfolio. And also, you know, you'll get within that technology stocks that will, you know, that have perhaps been overlooked um, and some really niche um, uh, uh, stocks that just, you know, um, that just they're brilliant companies, but they, they may, you know, they may not be in uh, exciting sectors, but they're still fantastic growth, growth stories. Great stuff. Okay, I'm going to get you to one final word, Adrian, on um, crypto assets. Well, maybe maybe more than a word, but um, you know, <laughs> do you? And I'm asking quite a few uh, professional investors this as well. But do you see them having a value in investors' portfolio and retail investors' portfolios? I I, I think you've 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 sort of asked it quite uh, appropriately, which I think is the term crypto assets. Um, and I think there is something there. Um, it's a very nascent asset class. Um, and I think by that, what that really means is there's a lot of people who don't know what it means yet. And, um, and I, I'd include myself in that and I've included many fund managers I've spoken to in that, that they wouldn't pretend to, to sort of fully understand it yet. So there's a technology in there and there are tools in there that will appeal. Um, but it isn't necessarily the, the stuff that's sort of leading. It isn't necessarily Bitcoin, for example. Um, and the price, the price discovery is very hard. So, you know, investing in crypto assets at the moment is is very risky because nobody knows what these things may or may not be worth and how it will look in five or ten years' time. So I think there's there's a potential there. Um, I'm not sure I know what it is yet, and I don't think I'm I'm, I'm uh, I, I, you know, I'm not an authority on this area, um, and I do, I do have fear that it is, it is a very evangelical asset class, and you know, people have this term. It's called hold on, which is uh, H O D L, which is hold on for dear life, which isn't <laughs> necessarily the best investment philosophy I can think of. Um, so I think you need to approach it with caution. I, I certainly wouldn't put more than you know one or one percent of my wealth in there if you're going to invest in it. Um, and I think you have to approach it with a view that, you know, particularly in the current climate, this stuff could fall 90, 95% in value or you could lose all your money. Um, it looks like this current rally has, you know, there's probably less to go than we've had already. And um, so the, you know, 1,000, 10,000% returns that some people are, talk about is probably in the past. And it may, you know, it may go up um, you know, 50% or 100%, but it could equally fall 100% at that at this point in time. So it's very risky, very speculative, but something will materialise out of that. Um, and the question is, and it's a bit, it reminds me of um, 
3D printing. Uh, that was a big fad back in, I think it was around 2014, 15, 16, that sort of time. Um, and it, you know, it was, it was on, on the cover of a lot of magazines and then it just faded and didn't really ever materialize as a, a sort of theme. And that's what you quite often get with technology is that it's, the technology is an enabler, not necessarily an investment opportunity in itself. Um, so you don't necessarily make money out of the 3D printer itself. You make money out of the tech using the technology to create something. And I think that's where crypto will be. The technology will create something, but the technology itself might not be the, where the money is to be made. Brilliant. Adrian Laycock, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, Adrian. Well, thank you very much for that. Lots to chew over there, Marcus. I think I think there is really, and of course, you know, inflation is one of those. That's why we focused on it a little bit. It's one of those big questions um, because I think things are very different uh, today than how they have been in the past ten years. Um, and and Adrian highlights that quite well. All this this big spending by governments plus lots of pent up um, savings by consumers. Um, so, you know, I think, I think the risks are there and I think what you also, you know, introduce is a lot of people in the beginning of this pod is a lot of people are in cash ices. Mm. So, you know, now has never been a, a better time really to consider how that cash that you have, you know, keeps up with inflation if it does. Um, we've got the magazine coming out at the end of this month on the 25th of June and it's all about income. And it's all, and there's plenty in there as well about income that 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 can keep up and beat inflation as mm. well. We're giving you lots of ideas about that. There's, there's planning ideas, there's investment ideas around that. So it's going to be a bit of a focus. You know, income is the focus of the mag, but you know, inflation will be talked about a fair bit. So if you're worrying about that, don't forget you can sign up on our website if you if you want to receive it as soon as it's out. Um, uh, and that'll be the 25th of June. So I'm looking forward to, to, to putting that out there. Super. Okay. Well, that's the end of this episode. And in fact, the end of this series, second series, um, difficult second series, um, uh, 36 episodes. Bizarre, bizarre number. But um, there you are. That is, um, that is that. So we're taking a, a small hiatus uh, next week, but we'll be back in two weeks' time with an interview with a chap who's about to retire from a long and quite successful career in the investment management business and we're quizzing him on what next and how he's going to be looking after his money with a bit more time on his hands so join us for that in two weeks time until then it's goodbye from us goodbye goodbye